Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Nation of the Cross podcast. This is Jeff Stevens hosting today as I do every time. Um, I had this um, message today that we did at our here at our home church. And as I started to prepare to do another podcast, I felt like I would stick this message in, or at least parts of it, um, because when preparing this message and then delivering this message to our home church, I just really felt like there was so much in this message out of Galatians 6 that was so important that I thought it was worth it. Uh, to put it on a podcast to put out there for anyone who's willing to listen. So if you'll bear with me, I would love to share not all of, but parts of um, Galatians 6. So we started Galatians um, a couple of months ago when we started the church. I had made the decision that um, if you're going to start somewhere, it might as well be kind of at the beginning. So we didn't start at the beginning of the Gospels or the beginning of the Bible, but we started with the first letter that Paul would have written, which is Galatians. And uh, it's it's really been an awesome journey. <clears throat> Being a home ministry that has overwhelming um, military support, military families, military members, their wives, their kids, um, this letter has just been awesome for us. It's brought a lot of real cool truths. Um, we've been able to exposit some amazing pearls of wisdom, uh, pearls for our walk. And uh, it's been really, it's been a blessing, I think, for those who come. And it's been a blessing for me uh, to be able to study, to read, to do the exegesis, to do the expository preaching. And we just, we go line by line right out of it. Now, as we crept up on the end of the book, uh, we, I took a couple of kind of larger swaths uh, of Galatians, just it's hard for me to nail down why, I guess, as I read and I studied, I felt like it was easier to cover some larger portions during the, uh, close to the end of the letter. But as I get into six, there's a couple of big swaths in there, but as I crept up to the end, uh, there's a couple verses that are just amazing and bring some great spiritual truth that I wanted to share. So as I look into six, I just start right out. Um, Paul kicks kicks the, well, the letter's already been kicked off, but this chapter starts off with, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is, uh, this is really awesome, because I look at the community that I'm in, the military community, when we, you know, we, we are more intimate probably than many communities are. Now, I haven't been in a lot of other communities and as much as I've touched on the civilian community, I've just never worked in a regular civilian job, so I don't know what the um, workplace looks like, but I, it would be hard for me to imagine that there's the intimacy that we have where we work. We really cover a lot of ground with one another, probably because we see the best and the worst of each other. Uh, and as I look at this thing, I really think, I mean, we are the type of people who are willing to call each other out regularly. Um, when we talk about being caught in trans transgressions, we should restore them. And so what does that mean as we look down at this restoration process and then also bearing each other's burdens? This is an awesome, awesome truth. So we know that sin is a nature. 
and we can't get away from it. It's in our it's in our nature to be sinful. Paul's very clear that we you know he he carries the old man. Um, he has a hard time getting rid of this nature. It's not something that we can do on our own. Although we grow in our sanctification, uh, we are sanctified by Christ, uh, and we are justified um, by Him, and we are also justified by our works, as James would say. There's this never-ending kind of drag of our flesh, and until we are glorified when Christ comes back and raises us, uh, that will always be there. But in transgression, you know, starting to turn and walk the other way, what does it mean, this restoration? And this word from the Greek, this katarizo, is this word which means to perfect or put back together, return to proper condition. But it also means to equip, equip, and to train. And when you couple that with the idea of bearing burdens for one another, and, you know, even Jesus in, in John 13 would say, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, justify as, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, as Christians, we should love each other in a way that when somebody falls into some sort of transgression, not only do we help them identify that in their life, but we don't just say, you're living in sin, or hey, what you said or what you did is wrong, or point out those things in their lives um, that aren't in perfection. Because we know that people are sinful. Now, however, when one does cross a sinful line or doing things that are hurtful to the body of Christ or things that are sinful that are going to um, you know, affect their own nature, we need to be honest with this. The but part is, in this spirit of gentleness, we should be helping to put each other back together. We should be helping to return each other to proper condition, help our brothers and sisters back into the walk. And then this other aspect of this, which is to equip and to train is teach each other what is right. We can't just expect people to know always that they're doing something wrong. Now, most definitely, we all know that the Holy Spirit can convict us in things that are right or wrong. The moral law is definitely written in our hearts, especially those who are saved. We get this feeling of things that we do that are wrong if you've stolen something or if you've lied to somebody, if you've cheated somebody, um, if you are uh, doing things outside of your marriage that are, uh, that are not good for your marriage. Um, this overwhelming feeling of guilt should be there, although I can't speak for everybody and don't know if it is. So how can I expect that everybody would know exactly what right or what wrong looks like, even though we strive to, and we strive to read the Word of God, but we don't know how much someone is, and we strive to do good works, but not everyone knows what the difference is between uh, uh, regular works and works that uh, are striving for goodness in the grace of God. So, in this spirit of gentleness, we should be equipping and training each other especially those who are elders, pastors, preachers, and teachers in the church. But I would definitely say men of the church, most definitely your call is to do this. And then women, with other women and the children of the church, this constant attempt to try to perfect and put back together the body, return it to its proper condition. And when we bear each other's burdens in this way, this is how the church works 
well together. And uh, he says here in verse 2, it's to fulfill the law of Christ. And as I read to you out of John 13, this is the commandment Christ gave, that we love one another just as Christ has loved us. And this idea of bearing burden is that idea of carrying a backpack or carrying a pack. So we should literally take burdens from each other, put them onto ourselves. If you imagine walking with someone and they are carrying sin or carrying a burden, carrying something that's too heavy for them, if it's ruining them, ruining their marriage, ruining their walk with Christ, it's tearing them away from the truth. We come alongside them. We take that pack off from them. Now, clearly, you just can't uh, assume the position of that sin. But you have to be able to come alongside and give good counsel in honesty and gentleness. Sharing what you believe from the Word of God is right and or wrong. And then, not just give your opinion, but give good, deep, prayerful, and loving advice in order to equip them and train them to return them. And I, I just thought this was such a great truth because this community from, like I said, from the military that I am, I am in and have been serving with and through uh, is just uh, is such an honest community. And in some ways we do this well, and in other ways we don't do it well at all. And probably one of the best ways that we can do it is servant leadership, which is something that everybody can work on in the church, in the military community, in the civilian community, where our leaders serve subordinates or serve people who are uh, younger than them in a way that they learn that when uh, people are served or feel served and loved well, that they are typically at their best. And this is something we can take from this, to come alongside, to perfect, and to bear one another's burdens. The second part of this chapter that really um, was really important to me, and I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit as we get close to the end of the chapter. Paul, as he makes it into about um, uh, verse um, 12 to 13, is going to start kind of going back to where he started when he started writing the letter to the Galatians. And in verse 12, he said, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So these people who are trying to be law followers getting other people Christians who are not following the Mosaic law, they were not following the law from the Talmud, trying to get them on board, be circumcised, follow these rules. Paul says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's the key. He says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And man, this just hit me because I thought, isn't this just it? Paul's been giving this deep theological lesson throughout all of Galatians. And what it comes down to is orthopraxy, right? How do you practice what you believe? So Judaizers believed they were believers. 
and their idea of practicing meant following the law to become circumcised to follow a set of rules. The other believers there, most of which would have been prior to pagans, are now believers were not following the law, but were getting kind of duped into following the law. And this is why Paul is writing this letter to try to correct the entire situation on both sides. But it's he is addressed back and forth both, both sides. He has addressed the Judaizers. He has addressed them saying, hey, you're, you're doing this wrong. You're leaving them out. He has addressed the Galatians by saying, hey, you know, did I come here in vain? You know, you were good to me. You took me in, but I've taught you this. You have the fullness of the gospel, and now you're walking astray. And he goes back and forth throughout his letter trying to show them the error in their race. He's trying to fix their theology. He's trying to fix their orthopraxy. But here's the thing. At the end of it, he's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. All this stuff that you're trying to do, circumcised, uncircumcised, it just doesn't matter. And this is what he says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the center of it all, right? We cannot be truly believers. We cannot be saved unless we are truly believers in Jesus Christ. You know, through our faith, we are saved you know, through his grace by our faith. Here is, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is what uh, Paul tells us. But, you know, one of the best stories here is this story from John 3, where the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to him, starting right at the beginning of the chapter in John 3, He comes to him at night, he sneaks in, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, uh, we know that you're a good teacher who come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this idea of being a new creation, being born again. And Jesus then, shortly after, is going to explain to Nicodemus how we are born again. He tells him we are born of the water and born of the Spirit. This idea of being born of the Holy Spirit. And we are born once in our physical life through our mother of the water. And then we are reborn again in the Holy Spirit. This idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit enters us. And we are a new creation in Christ. And this is the key to the gospel. The key is to repent, to believe in Christ. And the Holy Spirit provides us with new life. That will show in its evidences through our fruit. And we covered that, of course, in our last church meeting. If you would go back a chapter in Galatians 5, we see that the evidences of the fruit, the fruit, the evidences from Galatians 5 are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when you break down all these things you do and can't do, should do, will do, shouldn't do, and make all this big ado about all these things in the church that we should do to be perfected, you know, you should wear these types of shirts or these types of skirts, or you should only preach this way, and you can do all this and you can do all that. Now, we can argue that there is some orthopraxy or some dogma that's better than others, that some people 
practice in a way that's more honoring of God, that some people practice in a way that's more fast and loose with the text. You know, we can we can pick apart all of the, the pieces, but it's almost like Paul gets tired towards the end, although a man who was not easily tired, and he's like, look, let me break this down to you since I've had to reiterate this over and over, this idea of circumcision, circumcised or uncircumcised. At the end of the day, this is what it is. You got to be a new creation. You got to be a new creation in Christ. And he continues in 16 and says, uh, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. <clears throat> so he's really laying out the gospel here of Jesus Christ and that repentance and belief in Jesus Christ alone is what uh, where we meet with grace and uh, we are saved by Jesus Christ. But the part of this entire message and the part of this entire chapter that really, really brought it together for me was this verse, verse 17. As he gets ready to close this letter and he closes it very graciously with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. Very graceful way for Paul to leave them gently. He says right before that, for now, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Like, leave me alone. You've already troubled me enough. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And this was a, a, a big truth for Paul, a huge truth for Paul. He really, really bore the marks of, um, of Jesus on his body. You see, because Paul, he, he had it bad. If we look at 2 Corinthians 11... Starting in verse 24, he is going to talk about the beatings. I know he says in verse 23 um, that uh, he's talking like a madman. The far greater labors, far more imprisonments, greater beatings, and often death. He gets specific. He says, starting in verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So this is a legal thing for the Jews. Uh, a beating to death would have been 40 lashes or more. A beating of anything less to death is 39 lashes. So he's beaten right to the verge of death. So five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was once stoned, which is, might be why he was going blind, because he was stoned at Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night he was adrift at sea, sounds awful, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, and cold exposure, and apart from other things, there's daily pressure of me and my anxiety for all the churches. He's saying, you know, I, I definitely bear the mark of Christ. He definitely does. I'm going to talk about that for a second because this idea from 2 Corinthians 11 of bearing the mark is that word stigmata, that to bear the mark or to be marked for. Um, you know, this this wasn't just a, a you know a horrible horror movie from the 90s, and it's it's not just this fantastic story of this um, Saint Francis of Assisi who. 
Um, my Catholic Church records has the markings of the nails of Christ in his hands, feet, and side. This idea of bearing the marks of Christ is much deeper than that. But I want to lead up to that just with a, with a little bit of history of, of what's going on here. You see, Paul wasn't killed until about 67 A.D. He was killed under Nero. After all the torturings he had gone through, when he's finally in prison, when he's finally taken captive in Jerusalem and, and argues his case, and they eventually they get him to Rome, even after being shipwrecked, they get him to Rome, and he's in prison. He is going to get killed three years after this massive event. And this massive event was this big fire in 64 AD that supposedly burned through a part of town where there were a lot of businesses in Rome and a lot of street sales. And there's rumors of whether or not the government that Nero was running wanted that part of town for a different type of building. And I know it seems like a long time ago, and how do we learn this stuff? But we do know that there was some, um, definitely some second guessing about what the government had going on at the time. We know this because there were writers of the contemporaries. See, a massive martyrdom of Christians began after that fire because they blamed it on them. And here's what the Roman historian Tacitus wrote in his uh, annals, which was right, written much later, but he uh, died early second century. And he wrote this. He said, therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, he, Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, or Christ, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, curator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all of its quarters as to a common receptacle. And they were all encouraged. Accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city. This is the key as of hating the human race. See, Tacitus was no lover of Christians. He called their movement pernicious. There is a pernicious superstition. It was actually evil, he thought. It was just at its core bad. And it was repressed after Christ was killed. He said, which is really not very true. But he said it broke out again. Not just in Judea, it breaks out everywhere. Yeah, it's Christianity. People want to be saved. And they're hearing about this hope and they run to it. And what he says is the Emperor Nero and his party basically make this story of this fire up. And that's not why they killed these Christians. That's not why they spent the next number of years hunting and murdering Christians in Rome. They killed them because they, they, they said the Christians hated the human race, which is pretty interesting. Um, nothing's really changed. Nothing's really changed throughout time. You see, Christians are hated. Are we not labeled for that same thing today? Does the world not say that we have phobias, you know, that we're Islamophobic or homophobic or transphobic? You, you fill in the blank. We're, we're hated. We are hated and said we have hatred for attempting to show them the hope that lies only in Jesus Christ. You know, why? Why do they hate like Nero hated 
and exterminate. And it's because, as Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is what Satan is whispering in the ears of those that hate. He marks us and sets us aside. And there's a lot of ways you can get this mark. See, not everyone, not any of our contemporaries are going to uh, be beaten and whipped and tortured and caned. Now, in some countries, yes, some parts of the world, even today, there's massive hatred and there's murder. I got to spend some time in Africa before I retired. Christians are murdered there regularly. Whole entire villages of them murder and rape, decimation, pillaging, plundering. Unbelievable. Part of the Pashtun district, Pashtun region of the world. Unbelievable what's going on to Christians. But in our country, as we could see over the last year, Christians were called you know, spreaders of this virus because we wanted to meet as commanded in the Bible and meet in church. We were told that we were ignorant and didn't follow science and we must hate. They even use a verse out of the Bible. You know, what about loving your neighbor? Which insinuates that you do not love your neighbor. See, this is what Satan's going to whisper to them. But we know that Christ told us that it will hate you because it hated him first. But you may not be tormented. You You may lead a relatively peaceful life. They don't need to be physical scars of torment to be marked by Jesus or to bear the marks of Jesus. They can be hatred of the world, and we've already established that. You know what another mark could be? That we love one another, like John 15, 35 says. It could also be by your fruit, Matthew 7, 15 to 20. We, of course, know that... um, that greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen, And as we covered in Galatians 5, this fruit, the, the spirit, the evidences of in our life, these are all marks of Jesus. And that was really my question today for us as a church is, do you bear the marks of Jesus? Although none of the guys I work with will probably get whipped for their faith. They may. We may see things change. Today, do you bear some sort of mark of Jesus in your life? Is it the way we love one another? Is it the way we lay our lives down for one another? Is it the fruit that we bear? Is it these evidences that we see of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5? Are we doing things like attempting to perfect and put each other back together in proper condition to equip and to train when one of our brothers or sisters falls into a transgression? Do we bear one another's burdens? that therefore fulfills Christ's law. Do we do those things? Those are all marks of Jesus Christ. And that is my prayer for us today, that we all be marked, that everyone know that we are believers in Jesus Christ because we bear that mark, that mark of good works, that mark of good fruit, that mark of service, the evidence is the Holy Spirit in our life, and the evidence of laying our lives down for one another. So brothers and sisters, go forth today, wear those marks proudly. We do it um, because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because he loved us first. I love all of you. God bless you and stay on the grind.